Mindfulness Mode 181. Being able to regulate my breathing and slow my heart rate down even in the most difficult times is absolutely key. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for joining us. As appreciation for listening, I have a meditation infographic for you called Calm Your Busy Mind. This download focuses on breathing, exercise, and mantras. Get your copy at mindfulnessmode.com slash calm, C-A-L-M. Mindful Tribe, I'm so glad you've joined us today. Today we have a very serious topic, a topic that it is not always easy to talk about. It's the topic of mental health. And we have a guest on who has had mental health challenges himself. So he's in a position to talk about this. And he's a mentor for others. He's very passionate about helping those who are touched by suicide, those who have so many so many negative voices that they don't know how to deal with it. Challenges that can lead people to the tragedy of suicide. So I just really urge you to share today's episode as much as you possibly can. It's good to get talking about these issues. And I'm very grateful again that you've joined us today. So sit back, enjoy, learn and share. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited to have AJ Nystrom on the line today. Hey, AJ, are you in mindfulness mode? Yes, sir. I'm locked in and ready to go. Awesome. AJ Nystrom is a mental health patient. He is a former United States federal agent and worked as a corrections officer. He's now a certified life coach, author, and public speaker. He's been diagnosed with several mental health challenges, which went undiagnosed for 18 and a half years. AJ was ridiculed extensively when he was young and now is determined to help others who deal with similar challenges. So, AJ, we're going to start right off with mindfulness. Tell us, what does mindfulness mean to you? Mindfulness to me really just means being clear and concise about where you are in this moment and where you're going forward in the next second, the next minute, the next hour. Um, Being calm and accepting the present as it is, a present, a gift. Well, I alluded to some of the challenges in the intro that you've had, but can you describe your life up to age 12 and what you had to deal with? Up to age 12, uh, I was pretty much the average uh, young American boy. Um, I love baseball. Uh, At age nine, I started playing the drums. I started taking lessons from a gentleman who learned from the drummer for the Tommy Dorsett band, the big band jazz band, um, who actually also taught the drummer for Journey. So that was pretty interesting. Um, But basically, I I was just the average kid and uh, a very, very good student. Um, I'm I'm still involved with the Catholic Church. and basically just 
doing the church thing every Sunday, being involved there, and being a really good student, always mindful of my curfew and all that other fun stuff. But just the average, every everyday um, American kid. Okay, well, I noticed that when I was researching you, there was a place where it said that since age 12, you've had a plan to commit suicide. So how did that come about? What happened when you were age 12 that you became so desperate that you felt you wanted to commit suicide? Around age 11, which is grade six here in the U.S., middle school, um, middle school, it was a very difficult time for me. And seventh grade, uh, which is uh, age 11 into 12, uh, um, things got really, really worse. Uh, there was a group of kids that um, when you're in middle school, you have to align with a certain group. You, you can't be alone. Alone is a very dangerous place to be. So you have to get in with your clique. And I wanted to be a cool kid. And the cool kids at that time wore a certain type of jacket, had a certain type of haircut, and listened to a certain kind of music. So whether I did or didn't, I liked those bands. And whether I did or didn't, like those clothes, I got them, or at least I tried to, unless my mom said absolutely positively not. Um, and basically, one of the kids, and I'll call him leader because that's what he was, the leader of the group, if he liked you, you were in. And if he didn't like you, you were out and you were bullied big time. And one of the things was they were all musicians. And as I alluded to, I started taking lessons when I was uh, nine years old. And so I figured none of them are drummers. And in order to be in a rock band, you need a drummer. So I got with them and started playing with them a little bit. And then I realized the practices, the band practices got less and less and the beatings got more and more. So I quickly realized that I was uh, out of the group and I was now a target for them. And um, the catalyst for everything was when my grandfather passed away in February of 1997, which was still grade seven. Um, my birthday is in March. And uh, my grandfather passed away February 3rd, 1997. And the beatings got worse. They started using weapons. I went to a private school and uh, they started using the belts off their uh, pants. They started using the, the clip-on ties uh, to pretty much whip me. And uh, it, it was a difficult time for sure. And I just felt that um, there was really no way out. And um, uh, I, I'm certainly not on a cusp, but um, one of the kids after one of the beatdowns says, why don't you just kill yourself and make this all end? And up until that point, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have anything um, that that mindset or that option wasn't available. But after that time, it was an option and I created a plan. I knew right. I knew where I knew when I knew how I was going to kill myself. And it was just um it was just a matter of time of being pushed over the edge. And thankfully, even though I've been to the edge, I didn't go over it. Wow. And did you tell anyone at the time about this? At the time, no. Um, I told several teachers, I told several administrators about the uh, the bullying and the abuse. And 
at that time in the United States, I'm not sure about Canada, but in the United States, there wasn't any anti-bullying legislation. I know the first anti-bullying legislation in Massachusetts, I believe, was 2004. So that was even after I graduated from high school. So at that time, it was still accepted as just, and I'm using air quotes here, but um, a part of growing up or boys being boys. Right. And so in your mind, why did you think this was happening to you? I'm really not sure. Um, I, I know that I blamed myself quite a bit. I, I could be cooler. I could be in better shape. I could like better music. Um, and it was a lot of self-blaming, a lot of self-loathing. And I've come to know that that was all um, irrational. But like I said, in an adolescent mind, um, everything was rational because I didn't know anything other than that. Of course. Did you look around for other friends? Um, yeah, and uh, I'm actually working on self-publishing my own book. Uh, and in that book, I talk about being um, almost too average, uh, almost like a man apart. And um, apologies to Vin Diesel for his movie. I don't mean to, um, you know, illegally reference that or anything. Um, but basically... I was too smart to be in the quote-unquote dumb kids. I was too athletic to be in the the walkers in my gym class. If you don't participate in the uh, activity, you have to walk around the field to get credit for the class. Um, but I was also uh, not smart enough to be a nerd. And so all these different groups, all these different cliques that existed um, – I was out of them because I wasn't enough of one and I wasn't, I was too much of another thing to fit into any of these groups. I did have like one or two friends, but even they didn't really grasp the whole concept of what was going on. So were your parents aware that you were going through a really, really tough time? Um, haven't spoken to them before I released the video and as I was going through the process of um, writing my story, getting it on, on paper, I realized that later on, we're talking like uh, late seventh grade, they did realize that something was going on because my mom caught me coming out of the shower um, and um, she saw that there was blood on my, my back and I was an extremely good actor in the sense that I hid everything so, so well. And um, she didn't know anything was going on except for the fact that there was blood on my back when I came out of the shower, and she questioned me on it. And like a water balloon, she just poked me a little bit, and I just erupted. I told her everything, and uh, we went to the school, and the school said, well, you know, we didn't know about this, and I just wanted to scream obscenities at the principal saying, I've been in here 14 times telling you the same doggone story, and you've done nothing about it. How can you not know about it? But in the sense, that was the way that things were in that time period. And so how did it progress in the next few years? What happened then? My story really first came to light. Um, after eighth grade, things died down. It's in here in the U.S. Uh, we have eighth grade, and then you go into high school at uh, grade nine. Um, and 
at grade nine, it's like, like the maturity process speeds up a little bit. I don't know how it works. I haven't really researched it much, but uh, it died down. And my story didn't get um, kicked back up again until grade 11 when um, I was in a peer mentoring program. And they asked me to tell a story about a difficult time that I went through. And I told that story in very graphic detail, actually more detailed than I actually go into in my book. Um, and the teacher said, you know, these are really big allegations. I said, they're not allegations. It's true. And they pulled me right out of class. I was again in a uh, private school and they had me talk with the, the priest. They had me talk with the headmaster, my guidance counselor. My mom was called in. Um, and basically my mom didn't realize how bad it was. Even after I had told her, or at least in my seventh grade mind, I told her everything. I didn't tell her the complete 100% true story. Um, and even the fact of the thought of killing myself didn't come out. I didn't tell her that until, geez, maybe about a year ago. And um, she still doesn't know about the uh, the letter I wrote. So that was an interesting, it's easier to ask for uh, forgiveness than permission. Um, as far as my video was concerned. So the whole story came to light to a select few people in high school. And then after that whole situation died down, it went back into its nice, neat box, and it got buried really, really deep. So deep, I forgot about it. I just continued living my life with um, just feeling down, and I didn't really have anything to call it because I was still functioning. Uh, until I went into corrections in 2007. Right. I was going to ask you, what led you to the career of corrections? Ever since I saw a state police officer in second grade at career day, and he said, I help good people out of bad situations, and I help them put their lives back together. I said, you know what? In my second grade mind, I want to do that. I want to help people. I want to help good people get out of bad situations. And my way to do that um, was through corrections and then make the jump over to the local police department. That's the way that my uncle did it. My uncle's in law enforcement. Uh, a lot of his friends followed the same path, go into corrections, take the test to become a police officer, and make the jump a couple years later. Unfortunately, that didn't happen for me, and um, the prison that I was assigned to uh, had, at the time, a huge mental health problem with the inmates. Uh, inmate mental health care uh, was next to nothing, and I saw a lot of horrible things um, that the normal person shouldn't see, and it really kicked up, the term that I use is, it kicked up a lot of mud. It kicked up a lot of uh, suppressed memories of the physical abuse and the, the verbal and mental abuse that I took, emotional abuse that I took in, um, in middle school. And, um, you know, um, when you see somebody breaking apart a television and eating it, you know, it kind of just goes through your mind in a way that it's not supposed to go through. I realized right then and there, we're talking, I started in September 2007, um, these feelings and these, the realization that I needed help came up in December 2007. 
And so when did you actually get help? <laughs> Funny you should ask. I didn't actually seek help. I didn't sit down for my first therapy session until January of 2015. Wow. Part of the reason behind that is in law enforcement, and I think in this great misconception of manhood and masculinity, there's this idea that if you seek help, you're in some way weak and inferior, and especially with correction officers, uh, because there's this expectation that whatever you see, whatever you do, if you get into a fight, if you get assaulted by an inmate, if you get cussed out by an inmate, that you leave that at the door um, when you leave. And that just does not happen. And the idea of mental health with correction officers is non-existent. I know um, at least seven officers with the Massachusetts Department of Correction that have um, died by suicide. And I knew them personally. I either went to the academy with them or I worked with them or I hung out with them outside of work. And it's a very pervasive um, problem in the corrections field. And did any of them ever share with you their challenges, their frustrations, mental health challenges? Absolutely not. No. And the that comes back to the idea that you're weak if you seek help. If you can't handle it, then that's your own fault. And I'm, that's not me speaking. That's the um, misconception that's out there. And that's why I want to share my story, uh, especially with corrections and first responders, because you know, that, that idea that you're weak is totally false. We are seeing stuff. We are dealing with stuff that the average person, the average citizen does not even want to hear about, never mind want to deal with. So were you able to help any of the inmates that you noticed were having mental health issues? A lot of the inmates gravitated towards me in the sense that, hey, you know that Nystrom kid? We can actually talk to him. And um, it's actually, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's discouraged between uh, correction officers to talk with an inmate, which I understand where they're coming from in the sense that mental health has their field. We have therapists that are on site. We have clinicians that are on site um, so that if an inmate claims crisis, um, we can bring a therapist down, we can bring a clinician down, and the inmate can speak directly with the therapist. As far as just talking to somebody on a human level, uh, we were very much discouraged from that. But I, I kind of skirted that because I firmly believe that communication, just talking with another human being and having a little bit of empathy goes such a long way. Oh, yeah, for sure. So did you talk about mental health issues with other people outside of corrections, like with some of your friends or maybe relatives? It's difficult. I talked with my uncle about it, and he shared stories with the uncle that's a, a police officer. Um, he shared stories that what he went through and how he dealt with these um, up until that time um, – unnamed feelings that I was having. And uh, I realized that 
at that point, my feelings that were getting kicked up by these witnessing these events and being a part of these events were more than he was describing. Was he going through the same thing? I don't know, but my feelings were far more um, uh, saturated, more intense than his. Um, I talked with other correction officers outside of work, and one of them in particular said, hey, dude, you know, I'm going through the same thing. I'm actually seeing a therapist. Uh, I see them every six months. I'm on medication for depression. Maybe it's something that you can look into. Okay, cool. And he's he stopped me before I walked away. He goes, you can't talk about this in prison. You can't yeah. talk about this at work. Because if you openly talk to somebody that's in another clique, yeah. A, your story's going to be everywhere, and B, your name is going to be mud. These guys are going to ride you hard and fast and not going to let you forget about it. So that's where the discrepancy of seeking help versus um, talking about it. So when did you leave corrections, and why did that happen? I am still active in corrections. I'm still a full-time correction officer. Okay. Um, the coaching practice and the speaking uh, practice – uh, is on a, um, I call it a part-time level, but I'm getting to the point where I can possibly maybe, um, uh, break free from corrections. That's my ultimate goal. Um, and, uh, I left corrections to go to the feds in January, 2009. I returned to Massachusetts in February, 2011 and returned to the prison in June, 2011. So aren't you worried that some of your colleagues might listen to this interview? Absolutely. Um, well, let me correct myself. I'm not worried. I'm not worried because um, the video that I released on Saturday um, was a step so far out of my comfort zone that I can't, um, I can't go back to the way I was. And... Um, I believe it was um, Caesar when he crossed the Rubicon with his legionnaires. He said, Alea yakta est, which means this is it. However your life was before this happened, it will never be the same. You can never go back to the way that life was before. And Saturday and that video was definitely my Rubicon. Do I know how my colleagues will react to it? Nope. Um, do I care? a little bit, but I've made my bed and now I need to sleep in it. I see. So tell me what makes you so passionate about wanting to help others when you're actually in a position where it's really tough for you to help others in corrections. I know I'm not alone in the sense that I know that there are other people in corrections, there are other people in police, and there are other people in firefighting, EMS, doctors, nurses, any of the help and professions. I know that I'm not alone in the sense that um, we've seen too much, we've done too much, and there's somebody out there possibly listening to this now, possibly uh, um, watching my videos on YouTube um, or reading my blogs that are in the same position that I was when I was thinking about possibly, maybe, perhaps, kind of, sort of pulling the trigger. And it was that much of a tender situation. Um, 
and I, I should say pulling the trigger on seeking therapy, not pulling the trigger on a firearm. Um, I need to make that extremely clear. Um, you know, seeking assistance, and it's a very tender, very difficult line to walk because there is such a pervasive um, mentality of weakness in seeking help. And I want to be that beacon out there that says, you know, I want to be that guy that's standing up with my hand up in the air going, hey, yeah, I've seen too much. I've done too much. I needed help. And we need that, you know, that that uh, hand reaching through the darkness to lend support and pull each other out. Because we talk about the thin blue line and we talk about the thin red line and it's about a brotherhood, a sisterhood helping one another let's actually help one another with this mental health with these mental health challenges okay so let's say i'm experiencing some feelings of you know leading toward suicide and maybe some depression and i and i reach out to you and i ask you if you'll be my coach what kinds of things will you say to me what kinds of things can you do to help me from going down that path well, first of all, I believe you because there are so many people out there that will say, oh, that didn't happen. Oh, suck it up. And that's not, no, not at all. I believe you. I'm here with you. And um, as far as practices, it's different for different people. Um, first thing that I suggest is I'm not a mental health professional. I can tell you exactly what mental health um, seeking treatment has done for me. Um, being mindful, um, meditation. I do a lot of writing. Um, journaling has helped me beyond belief. Um, reading is another big thing that I love to do. Um, I never was a reader until I got into um therapy and into helping other people and now you will never find me without a book going whether it's an audio book whether it's an, a hard copy i'm always reading um so basically the first thing i do is assure people that you are not alone that we're in this together and i get them into meditating and i get them and I, my first thing is to try to get them to um, obviously build the trust and to come to the realization that I can't solve the problems alone. And I work hand in hand with a lot of therapists in the area, and we work together very well as a team. Basically, they handle the, um, the mental health side of things, and I work on the career aspect of things in the sense that um, if they do need to get out of corrections, if they do need to get out of policing, I help to get them into a, um, a career outside of their empl current employment as quickly and effectively as possible because uh, sometimes getting out of that environment, that unhealthy environment, is the quickest and easiest way to alleviate the being in a situation where you would be triggered or seeing things that you don't want to see anymore as quickly as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell us about meditation and what your meditation practice looks like, AJ. 
I don't have one specific person or one specific program that I follow. Um, I tend to, I, I schedule out at least three times a day when I'm able to spend at least 10 to 15 minutes alone in a quiet room um, as cold as possible. And I think that might be just a quirk on my behalf, but I enjoy a colder environment, a dark environment with as little noise as possible. Um, and being a musician, I have what they call inner ear monitors. So they're basically um, headphones on steroids and they block out any external noise that happens. You see a lot of people with them on stage um, and I put those in with any program that I find on YouTube or iTunes and basically I'm able to attach and detach from any feelings of uh, self-judgment. I figure out where that's coming from and just sometimes it's very progressive in the sense that I, I want to pinpoint exactly what I'm thinking about, where it came from. And I want to figure out uh, how I can improve on that feeling or totally eliminate that feeling or minimize it at least. Or other times I just want to chill and I want to make sure that there's nothing, absolutely nothing in my head. And I just want to recharge. I see. I see. And then let's talk about your journaling. Do you talk talk in your journaling as you write about a specific thing? Do you just start talking, you know, speaking randomly? What do you journal about? Uh, the easy answer is yes, all, all the above. Um, again, uh, one of the themes that's going through my journaling right now is relationships. Um, I'm reading uh, the five love languages and a couple other uh, books about relationships and um, just improving my friendships, improving my uh, relationships with uh, my clients. And uh, my journaling reflects that as well. However, if I start to get, um, and I'll use a term uh, that may be misconstrued, but um, if I tend to get a little bit manic, if I tend to get a little, little bit anxious with my thoughts where I seem a little bit too frenetic and I'm not able to focus on the task at hand, I'll take five minutes and say, okay, I need a journal. And I'll just do a brain dump about everything and anything that's in my head and go back to that a little bit later to figure out where my mind is and what's realistic, what is projecting and trying to figure out where this anxiety is coming from, where this um, overly obsessive um, thought is coming from, whether it's, you know, I haven't cut the lawn or I need to go grocery shopping or something silly like that. Or if it's something that's a little bit deeper that needs to be explored a little bit more, the sense of a theme only comes in once in a while and usually I pick the theme but sometimes the theme picks itself in the sense that okay obviously I'm writing a lot about uh, leadership so maybe I should read about leadership maybe I should write about leadership and reflect on it in my meditation as well so I try to keep everything um, free-flowing in the sense that 
I don't necessarily know what I'm going to write about next or what I'm going to meditate about next. But sometimes I, I do uh, get very specific as well. And do you go back and read those pieces of work later? Or do you usually just let it gel in your mind? I do go back. Um, I have everything that I've uh, ever written, which starts to get kind of cumbersome. Um, but I'll, I'll reflect and I, I try to keep everything color-coded in the sense that, you know, green is leadership, uh, red is uh, relationships, and there's a lot of overlap on those two. Um, and I learn from myself, and I call myself out on things that, you know, I'll, I'll say you should or you, you ought to or you must do X, Y, and Z. And if those practices have fallen by the wayside, I gently remind myself and make it a point to uh, reintroduce and to make those practices a, a little clearer in my behavior and in my thought process as well. Right. Well, it's really fascinating talking with you, AJ. My next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who influenced your mindfulness practice? I talk about this in my video. It's my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was, was my first uh, life coach and mentor. And basically, he was the one that taught me to take a moment and to evaluate what the moment was and what it truly was. Um, the idea of triplex listening, listening to what people say, how they say it, and also what they don't say was so important and that helped me out a lot. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, AJ? I'm on a much more even keel now. Um, the self-awareness part of mindfulness is so important to recognize um, when I'm feeling anxious, when I'm feeling depressed, and knowing myself well enough to say, okay, you are feeling depressed, you are feeling anxious, here are the steps you can use to weather the storm, and here are the things that you can do to come out of the storm a little bit quicker. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is huge for me because it slows everything down. Being in corrections, being in law enforcement, and being in high-pressure situations, being able to regulate my breathing and slow my heart rate down even in the most difficult times is absolutely key. And practicing that in the calm times is so important. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would that be? I really like The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and I'm blanking on the author, but The Way of the Peaceful Warrior is a little bit of a mind trip in spaces, but towards the end of the book, it really, really opens up, and it challenged me from cover to cover. Right. Oh, that's a, that's great. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? I know you mentioned while you're meditating that sometimes you have some something going. What do you have? Um, I actually don't have any apps uh, that I use specifically for uh, mindfulness. Uh, however, sometimes it's kind of an adaptation, but uh, I will focus on my breathing in the sense that um, I will hold my breath um, for a certain amount of time and then breathe it out 
for a certain amount of time to it varies depending on um the times and sometimes i'll just use a stopwatch for that if i don't have access to um a a podcast or if uh um my internet's not working i can just use my stopwatch for that it's a lot easier um but also the organization aspect of that too is um i said that i organize my time and the calendar is such a great app for that too so what advice would you give to a person who is suffering some of these thoughts of desperation maybe they're feeling a little bit depressed they're they're thinking about suicide how would you suggest they use mindfulness to change the their thought direction well first of all talk to somebody please there's so many people out there that are ready to help um as far as using mindfulness um being able to attach and detach to these thoughts and being able to calmly and uh, rationally uh, work through them is going to be the most um, most effective practice that you, you have at this point um, if you're not working with anybody. But first and foremost, talk to somebody. We are out there to help, and we can help you out. Good advice. Good advice. AJ, it has really been good to talk with you about this very serious topic today. And I'm just wondering, how could our Mindful Tribe listeners learn more about what you do and maybe connect with you? I have a website. It's crushcomplacency.com. And also you can follow me on uh, YouTube. I do coaching videos and also book reviews on the uh, the channel. It's uh you can search for Crush Complacency and also um, AJ Life Coach, A-J-L-I-F-E-C-O-A-C-H. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, AJ. I really appreciate all the work you're doing to help people out there. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a privilege. Okay. All the best to you. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.